Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the last episode of Season 5. Series 5, we still haven't decided whether there are seasons or series, of Why Would You Tell Me That with me, Dave Moore, him, Neil Denimer. Thank you so much for joining us. We are proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network, and you can get us on the social medias. We are at Why Would You Tell Me That on Instagram. He's at Neil Denimer Comedy, and I am at Dave Today FM. And we've reached the end, Neil. Yes, we have reached the end. However, we're going to go out with a bang, Dave. Okay. I know you like your food. I know you like certain uh, genres of food. I think... Your favourite food genre is Italian? Si. In the second half of the show, I'm going to tell you, said this to you last week, that everything that you thought you knew about Italian food was wrong. Now, that is such a big claim and a potentially Mm. disturbing claim, Neil. Mm. Because I don't want these things I know to be true to affect my enjoyment of Italian food if I am to learn that they are, in fact, falsehoods. Well, we're going to talk to an Italian journalist, Mariana Giusti from the Financial Times, who has written a hugely popular article with the same title, slightly different title, uh, Why Everything I Thought I Knew as an Italian about Italian food, essentially, is wrong. And if she still likes it as an Italian, you'll be okay. Okay, okay. okay. Has that that satisfied you? Yeah, as long as I can still enjoy my pappardelle ragù. And yeah. my gnocchi and all those things, I will be, I'll be more than, I, if, I, if I can keep eating tiramisu, I'll be very happy. If you, oh, I've just stopped saying it like that. Um, <laughs> so for part one, because at the end of the series, I've got some random facts for you. Usually they're connected with the stuff in the second half. Um, but these are kind of, some of them are a bit more topical, okay? Okay. Why is Dolly the sheep called Dolly? So Dolly was the sheep that was cloned. Famous. The cloned sheep, yeah, the famous yeah. cloned sheep. And the reason I ask you this is because her fleece was valued uh, at about 30 grand on the Antiques Roadshow this week. Did you see that? Oh, no. Yeah, somebody who worked in the uh, in the, the the institute that cloned Dolly, um, she was the first uh, sheep to be cloned from an adult cell, um, went on the Antiques Roadshow. And he said, how much is this worth? And I think it was her second or third shearing, shall right. we say, and it was 30 grand. But why was she called Dolly? Oh, this does sound like the kind of thing that I would have known or should now know, but I don't, Neil. I suppose that in itself is the true essence of this podcast. So tell me, why was Dolly called Dolly? Well, I think people probably knew it at the time because she was in all the papers at the time. But you know what? We think of uh, scientists as, as mature adults, I think, 100%, yeah. at the forefront of progress. Yeah. Her DNA was from the mammary gland of a sheep 
So she was called after Dolly Parton. No, just because Dolly Parton has big boobs. Yeah, they thought, oh, boobs. Who else is boobs? Dolly Parton. That's <laughs> ridiculous. And they called her Dolly. If she'd come from a rectal cell, would she be called Farage? Nobody knows. <laughs> but that is why she is called Dolly. She was cloned, cloned from a cell taken from mammary gland of a six-year-old Finn Dorset sheep and an egg cell taken from a Scottish blackface sheep. Only acceptable blackface. She was born <laughs> to her Scottish blackface surrogate mother on the 5th of July, 1996. But Dolly had a white face. So that was one of the first signs that she was a clone. She was a clone. Right, right, right. She she was genetically related to her surrogate mother. She would have had a black face. Gotcha, gotcha, okay. gotcha, gotcha. Right. Yeah, so that just is a topic of one. If, if the yeah. scientists being the body, you know, sun newspaper readers that they seem to have been, they probably considered calling the sheep Samantha Fox... We could yeah. because of the animal connotations and the confusion of the fox, of course, a predator of the sheep. Whoa. I'd still stick with the <laughs> boobs level of... <laughs> yeah, I mean, no. I'm surprised that they came up with the whole cloning thing while still trying to write that thing into the calculator, 80085 <laughs> or whatever it is. <laughs> 58008, five, come on. Is that, oh, yeah, uh, I knew, <laughs> yeah, you know, all right. <laughs> Okay, so that's just a topic I would have started off. Amazing, amazing. Wet your appetite, okay? There's only one country between Norway and North Korea. Whoa, s- slow down, Poncho. Yeah. There's only one country between... <gasps> Russia! Yes. And you oh my there. God! I did. So Norway extends so far north that it bypasses Finland and touches Russia. Curves over Finland. It dunks on Finland, essentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. then Russia... Being the biggest landmass, country landmass in the world, stretches all the way into North. Oh my god, that's incredible! That's kind of insane, isn't it? Um, you were the youngest person in the world at one point. Ah, this one I have heard that is so cool, yeah. Because yeah. now it presumably is for a very brief moment, yeah. At some point, you were born, and the next person to be born happened just after you in the world, so you were the youngest person in the world. So, they're the sort of things, except maybe the Dolly one, that you might just see in a passing internet thing, right? Sure. But this one, oh, I've got two doozies. These, <laughs> these are my favourites now in a long go on, time. Go on, go on, go on. Uh, Jimmy Carter, the president of the US. Yeah, yeah. Yes, former president of the US. He's a fine age now, in fairness to him. He's the, almost 100. He was involved in the cleanup of the first serious nuclear accident in the world. Jimmy Carter was? Yeah, yeah. The president of the United States was in. No, yeah. me, was he president at the time? No, that yeah. would be super. No, he, cool. was. he was. He was. No, he was yeah. the president, Dave. Yeah. And he went. You know something? They, I think I can take some time off from this Iranian hostage crisis. <laughs> go up to Canada and sort this shit out. So listen, they all they said he didn't get a second go up being the president because he didn't delegate enough. Um, and you have to agree that him getting involved in the cleanup of a, of a reactor accident would suggest. I mean. He really micromanaged Dave. He okay. Really, no. I, was, I realize how stupid a question this was. <laughs> I realize. It was December 1952. Okay. Right? And it was in rural Ontario and it had the first serious reactor accident in the world. It melted, partially melted down. It's in this place called Chalk River Nuclear uh, Laboratories, about 200 kilometers north of Ottawa. And uh, he was 28. What, well, sorry, what, what job did did he have that would have seen him go to the scene of a, a nuclear meltdown? Um, he was a body double for the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
You didn't see that was the last episode. <laughs> Have we gotten deep? Meanwhile, Pappy, he was Black Spider-Man. You know, when Spider-Man becomes oh, evil, Venom, Venom, that's, yeah, that's that's yeah. who he was. Right, right, right. No, so he was in the U.S. Navy, okay. and he's a he was a lieutenant or a lieutenant. Obviously, it was the U.S. Navy, and he disassembled or helped disassemble the reactor under pretty intense radiation. Like they were all in the you know the Intel ads, but without yeah. ha- the happy music, they're all yeah. in the white protective equipment, and they did ninety second shifts to reduce radiation exposure. I was going to say like nineteen. 19- 52. I mean, I don't know what the understanding of radiation exposure would have been. Obviously, it would have been high enough if they were already working 90, 90 second shifts and all that. But like to think that he has now lived yeah. to be 100 and uh, certainly doesn't show any signs of uh, overexposure to radiation is phenomenal. Yeah, he actually said it in his autobiography. He said there were no apparent after effects from this exposure. Just a lot of doubtful jokes amongst ourselves about death versus sterility. Right, okay. Well, maybe his his long life could be attributed to some kind of exposure to radiation that mutated cells in a way we don't understand. And that is why you're not a doctor. And True. shouldn't be let near yes, a hospital exactly. in any way, shape or form. We established <laughs> last week you eat grass. Put this on the list of stuff that Dave does to endanger himself and others. <laughs> but it's quite interesting why, if you think about this, this is in Canada, right? And he was one of 150 US military personnel. Yeah, why did the Canadian military not look after it? Who worked... Well, there was a clean-up. 150 US military personnel, uh, 860 facility staff, and 170 Canadian military personnel. Right. And 20 construction contractors. Well, so it happened in December 12th, 1952. There's a series of failures. Uh, There's a brief surge. It melted some of the reactor's fuel rods, and it maxed out about three times the facility's power, okay? So nobody was seriously injured. Nobody was killed. And they monitored the the, uh, the contamination and then it led to people you know thinking okay we've got to change the the procedures that we have for this but this thing this was the nrx reactor it was primarily used to probe the nuclear properties of matter and help advance reactor technology right okay. with the idea of at some point we're going to generate electricity from this yeah in the early days of cancer radiation therapy it provided the world's only ready source of radioactive isotope cobalt 60 which they first used in Canada in 1951 to bombard tumours. Wow. But less public, and this is possibly why the US got involved, was the use of the reactor by the Navy in America to test the uranium oxide fuel. Oh, okay. And it was developing for the first uh, nuke-powered subs. Right, okay, okay. So that's got to be kept secret. That's got to be kept secret. So off he went put himself in harm's way and then uh, many years later what 1976 1977 becomes the president of the united states i wonder did he use that in any of his campaigns you know kind of like look you know because i mean americans they, they they tend to use that kind of bravery you know yeah. uh, you know i've got this medal and i fought in this war and i did you know i wonder did he ever walk up to a campaign somewhere and go i'm the guy who jumped into the nuclear facility okay radioactive man yeah, then have a second head on his shoulder. Just going, <laughs> I vote for Jimmy Carter. Um, I always got the impression he was of that generation that was a bit more modest. Um, right, he was, yeah. Wasn't he a, a Georgian peanut farmer, I think? That was <laughs> These are things I did not know. That, in fact, alone is amazing. Yeah, I, I, yeah, he was a bit more kind of, um, dare I say, honourable. Or That's how he comes across, anyway, before it all descended into that sort of um, using your record. But maybe he did make, make use of it. I don't know, actually, on that fact. And, of course, I've uh, got to throw into this conversation that peanuts are, in fact, not true nuts. 
They are legumes. Oh, yeah. are they? Yeah. I didn't know that. You allergic to peanuts? No, but I do hate them in chocolate. Do you like them in other things? Yeah, I like them plain. I will eat peanuts till there's... Till the Daves come Daves home. Daves come home. Uh, reference to last week's podcast. Yeah. Uh, but I, if you... And then, sorry. So I would eat a handful of peanuts yeah. and then eat a Mars bar. But if you gave me a Snickers, I would punch you in the face. <laughs> like this... I'm being honest. I hate... I hate nuts in chocolate. What? That's... That's odd. Do you, do you not like... Nutella? No. Hate it. Ferrer Rocher? No. Gick to the top of a cornetto. Well, if I buy a cornetto or get given a cornetto, I have to give the top to my missus. Right. She's to eat the nuts bit, and yeah. then I can eat the rest. Do you eat the bottom of it with the ice cream at the bottom? Yes. Okay. So, so would you have absolutely kicked off at the ambassador's residence if he came out with that muck? I well, I would have said, "What else have you got there, Senor Delgado?" I'm assuming it was a <laughs> Colombian embassy, even though they're plainly French or Swiss at the very least. <laughs> So, Colombian yeah. Senor Delgado Straight what? away That's where I was, I was at The, the Spanish cyclist Who's up against know. Stephen Roach In the 80s Wasn't it I don't know why Oh you're spoiling us Why did you have So many Ferrer Rocher Left over Mr Delgado Oh they're, You're using them As fuel On the <laughs> Of the Altuez Ascent Were you <laughs> Do you know I once asked What the most embarrassing thing An audience member Had ever done yeah, and he said I was at a I was at the ambassador's residence once, right? Yeah, and I went no, and he goes, uh, uh, I said, how did it go? And he goes, not well. Um, it was some black tie event, and I said, what happened? And he goes, there was a free bar, right? Yeah, I said, what happened? He goes, well, as I fell over, <laughs> right, <laughs> he got so buckled, um, that. He was standing at a bar and he was down in drinks and he did. I, you're not a drinker now and I, I drink infrequently, but there, there is a thing where you drink and you don't know you're drunk. I think Billy Connie was saying like your your legs are drunk first and you try right, and okay, walk okay, away. Okay, yeah, yeah, so yeah, he yeah. tried to walk away and his legs were, I don't think so. <laughs> so he leaned over and he grabbed uh, something to steady himself and he it was a tree in a, a huge big plant. Pot. Now it was about 25 feet high and he oh, right. and just fell backwards. Pulled the tree out of the pot, smashed the pot, made bits oh, no. of everything. And I said, that is pretty bad. He goes, it gets worse. I said, how <laughs> could it get worse? He goes, it was a charity event to raise awareness for the deforestation of the Amazon rainforest. <laughs> and he had basically fucked a tree in front of everybody. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, do you know the scientific explanation as to why your legs get drunk first? It's one of the most incredible no. things I've ever learned, right? There was yeah. a documentary on the BBC years ago, I mean, years ago, okay. on getting drunk. Yeah. And apparently, it's a long time since I saw it, but I, I just, I remember it, so I'm assuming it's right, but check check my facts and see. As you're getting drunk, yeah, the cerebellum is at the base of your brain, and that's what controls your movement. Right. So your cerebellum, as your body is filling up with alcohol and your bloodstream is filling with alcohol, your cerebellum gets drunk first in relation to the brain. So it's your movement that is first affected by alcohol. Wow. Your cerebellum is just a lightweight. Just, yeah, basically, that's yeah. what it is. Somebody you're, check that. I don't know for sure if that's true, but I definitely remember a BBC documentary about it. Your amygdala is at the back of your brain, just sitting there, hardcore, just down and down and shots. Yeah, fucking pussy. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't wonder. Yeah. Sarah Bellum's drunk again. 
Yeah, he's just sitting on the stairs with a bottle of gin going, you are pricks. <laughs> I could have been somebody. While slicing the synapses between neurons, just going, get rid of that, get rid of that. You don't get even remember this. I won't remember any of this anymore, <laughs> you bunch of bastards. That's <laughs> oh, Neil is my favourite Neil. <laughs> Other people have said that. Um, okay, uh, and I have a fact for you. I, I, I this this kind of blew my mind. Um, how fit would you say rabies is? Rabies? Yeah. Like you never hear of it's anybody not... getting rabies, do you? No, and if you do, I'm sure at this point there's some kind of an uh, the treatment, know, antiviral or something. Yeah, I. Pfft. There like, are, yeah. Not, there's, not fatal, I would suggest. And rabies, you know, isn't in Ireland. Uh, no. Because they're very careful to, to make sure it's not. I mean, untreated, I would imagine you're not going to fare very well. But I would suggest that we're probably, given that, you know, treatment is important. for the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go nine, 95%, 90%, 90% treated. 99%? 90% non-fatal. Symptomatic rabies is almost 100% fatal. What? 100% fatal. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I'm saying it like that. It doesn't make it any less weird. (laughs) How can it be? Okay, well, if you get the symptoms, so say you get bitten by something, right? Say you get bitten by a bat. And there's been examples of this. Get bitten by a bat, for example. Oh, nothing ever, nothing bad could happen from anyone getting bitten by a bat or biting a bat. We've categorically proven that's absolutely fine. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. If you get bitten by a bat and the bat has rabies and you don't get treated before you get symptoms. So symptoms can develop afterwards. So is it too late? Yeah. It is almost 100% fatal. This is according to the World Health Organization. Because I saw online, I saw a stat saying six people have survived rabies, symptomatic rabies, if uh, they haven't been vaccinated. Sorry, like ever? This is what it said. Now, I cannot back that up. Sure, sure, sure. But I went and went, I went online and looked. I said, that, that can't be true, is it? But the WHO says the symptomatic rabies is almost 100% fatal. So what happens is, and this is from the University of Nebraska. A Minnesota man is the first, and this was this year, reported fatality due to rabies in the US despite receiving appropriate post-exposure prophylaxis. So basically... There's a handful of people who have survived rabies that we know of. If you get bitten before you get the symptoms, go and you get treated and you get um, it's PEP. Basically, that's what it's called. It's a treatment that consists of a series of vaccinations and human rabies immunoglobulin injection. Right. At that point, you're much more likely you'll be fine. Then at that okay, stage, okay, OK, OK, OK. The patient gets a series of rabies vaccines on specific days within a two week periods, assuming they're not previously vaccinated. Yeah. Like the 60,000 people, by the way, receive PEP annually in the US. In the US? Yeah, yeah. So they receive PEP. So if they get bitten by something, maybe the thing gets tested. Uh, oh, maybe the thing so gets they may tested. or may not have rabies. Gotcha, yeah, yeah. Maybe the thing doesn't get, get tested, but they go and they get PEP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. 60,000 people receive PEP annually in the US. During 2000 to 2021, an average of two and a half people died from rabies every year in the US. But none received prophylaxis to prevent rabies before developing the symptoms so basically it's massively massively effective that old that older man he was actually in his 80s and he had an underlying condition was the first uh to, to die despite receiving the the peps but if you don't gonzo 
Right. It would suck to be the half person that died annually. Because, I mean, like, you've lived your life, you know, obviously tough existence being half a person. Uh, do we know, are they are they half divided down the middle? Or, like, you know, left to right side? Or is it, is it from the waist down? Or I think the half person is Blackburn jer- jersey, Blackburn Rovers jersey. They were sliced entirely in, yes. in the middle. Le- lengthwise, yeah. Lengthwise, yeah. yeah that's how yeah. they were done. Right, um, cheapers. Yeah, by, by a tube door in the underground in London. And because it was London, everybody just ignored it. Ignored it and just went on with their days. As, as long as the doors closed. Fell to the to the platform, yeah. but the other person, the other half, yeah. was inside. Yeah. And obviously yeah. the sterile conditions of the tube. Of the underground tube, yeah. And the good thing is, it was their dominant, they were right-handed. And that was the bit that was Handy. in the tube. Yeah, yeah. I mean, movement is difficult, you know, hopping uh, and balancing with, with one arm and hopping. It's, but look, whatever it takes. But then, but then, and then, having then to contract rabies and and even post PEP to pass away. I mean, this, yeah. is, this is tough. It's very sad. You would have thought that your life's lot of bad luck yes. would be injected into your, into your karma by, <laughs> by being severed in two by a tube door. But no, God had more in store for you. You know, sometimes I ask the guests when the podcast goes out, they say to me, when is the podcast coming out? And I go, your yeah. podcast is out next week. And sometimes I say to them, just listen to your part. Yeah, yeah, just flick through, flick through part one. Flick through part one. I think this might be one of those times. <laughs> I go 25 minutes in and just go from there. Yeah. Where, we, where the music plays after the ads. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you heard the word rabies, fast yeah. forward a little bit. <laughs> Fast forward a little bit. And maybe don't listen to that part. Uh, but all of those things are true, which I That's did incredible. not know. Absolutely uh, incredible. Stick with us in the second half because we're going to talk to Mariana Giusti, who has written one of the the articles that I've read this year that just jumped out at me and explains that everything we thought we knew and even that she thought she knew as an Italian about Italian food is wrong. But it's fine. We can still eat it. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? I am delighted to be joined by a journalist who wrote a brilliant article in the Financial Times titled Everything I, an Italian, thought I knew about Italian food is wrong. And oh. it's going to destroy all of Dave Moore's dreams and hopes because Italian food is his favorite food. Am I right, Dave? Oh, Mary, why are you going to ruin my day? <laughs> well, yes, Mary Justi is going to ruin your day. Thanks for joining us, Mary. Thank you so much, Neil. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for having me. Benvenuto. Grazie. Oh, look, he's already started. Now, will he be as friendly by the end of this? Um, <laughs> so I suppose, broadly speaking, Mary, like there's certain rules and I, I use rules in inverted commas around Italian food and drink and like, you know, cappuccino, you can't have a cappuccino after 11 o'clock or, or midday, I think. And Tagliatelli has to have a width of seven millimeters. And these are, have kind of been passed down by the elders from some bygone age is the suggestion. But that might not necessarily be true. And a man called Alberto Grandi has been making some bold claims about this. So can you give us a little background on Alberto? Absolutely. So Alberto is a professor of economics, actually, at the University of Pharma. And he decided to specialize in the history of food economy and agriculture. And that was his way into this type of research. A few years ago, he wrote a book which didn't sell very much at first. It was called Di Origine Inventata. That's a play on word on the Italian expression uh, Di Origine Protetta, D-O-P, which is a, stands for a protected designation of origin. So to give you an example, that would be a product like Champagne or Parmigiano Reggiano. Where yeah, yeah I see it on Italian cheeses sometimes, you see D-O-P. Exactly. It's on so many Italian products. French products too, it's very common. And it obviously has legal implications because if it's a designation that implies that um, it's obviously linked to the retail price, but it also means that if you, Dave, are making some cheese in your house, you can't use that designation if it's outside the yes. region that okay. enjoys rights. Okay, uh, Tracy, destroy the cheese. Destroy it now. <laughs> you just see cattle being moved out in the background of of Dave's shot. And he, he, he wrote this book and then did a, a kind of spin-off podcast, which has gotten well over a million downloads. But he's been essentially calling out the mis- mistruths about the origins of Italian foods. Yeah, he has. He has. His podcast... Didn't start off, I don't think it was that popular at the beginning until it was noticed by a famous Italian political commentator called Alberto Costa, who also has a D 
daily podcast, uh, which is about politics. But I think he gave a shout out to Alberto's podcast one day and that increased its popularity. And I like to think that after our viral article, the uh, Alberto's <laughs> work became even more popular. But it's also hugely controversial. He has a lot of enemies. Something that I mentioned in the article is how the Italian ambassador to Turkey was furious at him for slamming Italy's over 1,000 protected designations at, at a big international commerce conference. Um, and Alberto told me, I didn't insult them. I just say that I just said he said something like I just said they're excessive. But in truth, I know that what he meant was they're a load of rubbish. Right. To give you an example. Yeah, let's let's ruin Dave's life. OK. Yeah, on, because I'm just interested as to what 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 do you what rugs are you going to pull out from under my culinary feet? <laughs> Something that is very easy to understand, a, a variety of red prawn, gambero rosso, mm-hmm. that is very popular in higher end culinary circles in Italy, is il gambero rosso di Mazzara del Vallo, which is from a specific area, which was later found to be genetically identical to every other single red prawn <laughs> across the Mediterranean, but it has a higher price tag. And that's wow. just commercial fraud in a way, too. <laughs> Although I, maybe I shouldn't have said that. I don't want to be sued for defamation. Uh, okay. but I, I'm going to say the fact, which is that it is genetically identical to all its other cousins across the Mediterranean Sea. Well, Dave Moore is, unlike most humans, he's actually 70% tiramisu. It's not water. <laughs> oh, no, don't do anything to tiramisu. Not tiramisu. Oh, tiramisu. yes. Yes. Yeah. Off you go. What is it, Mary? Mary, ruin his tiramisu days. <laughs> so the deal with tiramisu, it's actually not that bad. I can tell you, for starters, it's 100% Italian. Okay. That is not That hasn't been challenged ever. And something that Alberto is very adamant about is how his work doesn't question the quality or deliciousness of the food. Okay. It just questions the origin stories and the historical accuracy of the legends that are exploited basically by marketing um, around them. So tiramisu, you will find a gazillion places and families claiming they started it. But um, uh, Alberto says something very simple, which is that the cheese mascarpone that is used in the original recipe could only be found before the so-called cold chain. So a post-industrial, post-war event. It could only be found in the Milan area. Okay. And that on top of that, the actual original ingredients are all stuff that you can only really find in the supermarket they're all industrial products Um, (laughs) so there's no kind of romantic you know centuries old recipe of combining coffee and yeah nana in some tiny little mezzogiorno cottage no Mascarpone was really found outside Milan before the 1960s and the coffee-infused biscuits that divide the layers are Pavasini, a supermarket snack, Dave, launched in 1948. Oh, my God. But it could still have been a really cool nonna with great taste. Just 
only a little while ago, not well, in 1712 or something. 100%. No, I and I don't know why that matters, because ultimately, if the dessert was invented two weeks ago and it's delicious, who cares? But I guess there is a kind of per- perception as a consumer of Italian food, as we all are. But as consumers, we kind of feel like, you know, this is a... If you've been sold the story... Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe you're not being told a story when you go and order a tiramisu in a restaurant in Ireland. I don't know. But certainly the impression of all Italian food to me is that it's ancient and that the pizza margarita was invented for the Queen of Italy, you know, in the 1500s or whatever. Maybe that's true. I don't know. But yeah. I suppose it's a different question than the DOP. So it's not true. No, go, uh, Mary. Go on, do another no. one. No, but what I was going to say is when you said that your perception of Italian food is that it's millennia old, that is a testament to the marketing genius that is beyond the narrative around Italian food, which is not less laudable than had it been true. Because it is outstanding, the legends that have been able to create. So according to Alberto's research, pizza pizza in general belongs to the wider family of disc-shaped... Flatbreads, I suppose. Flatbreads, exactly. They were really pervasive across the Mediterranean for centuries. And it belongs to the same family as pita, piada, pizza. Uh, In fact, if you go to Naples today, which is the place where it was originally created in Italy as a street food eaten by the among the poorest strata of society, it will still be served to you um, portafoglio. So it's called... Folded. Yeah, wallet style folded, which is the same way you would serve crepe. Yeah. Pita in some mm-hmm. cases. And before migrants started to return to Italy from the United States, people that had originally emigrated from America, it used to be topped not with tomato sauce, but with raw tomato, which is what you would see in a pita normally. So it was something much more casual and informal. And even the custom, the, the pizzeria, is something that's really started in New York, when migrants from the Italian South that left Italy because they were really poor, they were literally starving, started making some money and knew this type of food and decided it to sort of elevate it and start serving it in restaurants. But pizzerias really weren't a thing in Italy yet, to the point that where American soldiers landed in Sicily as allies to liberate the country from the Nazis, some rode back to their families in, on the East Coast in America, saying, guys, there aren't any pizzerias here. Like, what have you been telling me? <laughs> yeah. The argument's been going on in Manhattan for generations, which is, which is the original Ray's Pizza? The original's on 7th. What are you talking about, man? It's on 2nd Avenue. It literally yeah. was the original. Yeah. They were right. Yeah, 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 yeah. 1911 was the first one, and it was New York. Oh, yeah. come yeah. on. 1911. It's like an American's getting here and going, Irish Americans going, why does no one say top of the morning to you? Because <laughs> we never did. That was your invention. Honestly, I would, I would in my head, and this is so ridiculous, have an image of a Roman in a toga with one of those like long-handled... Metal, yes, and 
putting a putting a pizza into an oven, fired oven, and taking it. I'm so wrong. 1911 in New York. You're there in Pompeii, going. You've overcooked that one, lads. Anyway. <laughs> You just described a scene out of Las Vegas as well, Dave. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's very like, true. Do you like carbonara, Dave? Uh, uh, yeah, one of my favorites. <laughs> Guess what, Dave? Barry, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> you're up. So carbonara is probably the most emblematic of the examples of what Alberto calls invented tradition. It's a dish that if you ask anyone, especially from Rome, they will get extremely defensive and protective about it. And that they were claim they would they will claim that it dates back to eighteenth, nineteenth century miners. Mm. If you can can you imagine somebody who works in a mine in the nineteenth century who can decide he will only have the cheek of the pork? <laughs> yeah. It makes no sense. It just and makes sense. cream as well, yeah. Yes, and eggs. So um, <laughs> what turned out is even within historians, this is something that is debated. And I read this book. Uh, if anybody's interested in the history of Carbonara, I recommend reading an excellent book by Luca Cesari, who's a friend and collaborator of Alberto called A Brief History of Pasta. Mm. I think he has about 30 pages on Carbonara in which he details <laughs> the seven most historically credible origin stories. And one of them was the one that seemed to me to be the strongest, which was the story of a dinner cooked for the English and American armies um, in Emilia in Italy during World War II where the chef was an Italian, but he could only use ingredients from the kitchen of the American soldiers. So they had powdered egg yolk, some bacon, uh, and some pasta. Oh, my God. A very good cream. And Harold Macmillan apparently was there as well. And some cheese, obviously. Yeah. And so this Italian charcoal workers kind of origin story is uh, generally regarded as nonsense now, apparently, Dave. Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm yes. just wondering, what did the ancient Italians eat if they didn't eat any of the things I think they eat? <laughs> well, Goethe, the German author, apparently he was a lover of Italy and uh, he traveled it extensively. And apparently he says at least a couple of times in his books that he hasn't eaten anywhere as badly as he ate in Italy. Wow. Yeah. You turned that one around, didn't you? Seriously. I mean, you did did a good job on that. But there yeah, does it was France. The place of good cuisine really was France before the last century. There does seem to be, um, in your article, a, a big difference between the people who have kind of swallowed these myths and the people who haven't. And the people who haven't are older people who remember stuff going, hold on, when I was growing up, there was none of that sort of stuff. So a lot of the older people that you interviewed, because you did talk to your own grandmother and you talked to various other older older Romans, they kind of gave you a different insight, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually one of the reasons, I think you can like Alberto's work or not, but definitely the memory of my grandparents, one of them luckily still alive, is the grandma that I interviewed as part of the piece, is something that made me relate so strongly to his work and that made me feel like his ideas were really liberating in a sense because especially as an Italian living abroad I've always been associated with this 
stereotype, which I personally found exhausting. Like I remember the classic snack of my grandfather who wasn't a poor man when I was little and when I remember him, but he would just dip old bread in water or milk. Right. Yeah. And I remember my grandma giving me frozen food behind my mother's back because my mom was a classic baby boomer concerned with, you know, prime, fine, organic. And mm. my grandma had been through the war and she was like, this is amazing. I don't have to cook. <laughs> yeah, put it in the microwave. And what did your granny say? What did, like, what did she say about pizzerias or mozzarella or any of that stuff? Yeah, she. I hadn't, until I got the commission to write the piece, I hadn't realized quite the extent of how, in my opinion, right Alberto was. Because, for example, I remember her mentioning that she didn't grow up with pizza. And she had told me that the first time she had pizza, I think she was in her 20s. She was around 25. So it was definitely after the end of the war. My grandma was born in 1935. And, but then I, I went back to her when I was writing and I asked her a few more questions. And I also realized she didn't know what a mozzarella was until a, the first supermarket chain opened in our town in the 60s, which wow. again, shocking. Shocking. Really shocking. Yeah. And there was a 97-year-old man who, Dave, only had pasta on Sundays. Yes, as well. Yes. Because, again, like Irish people, we are stereotyped with the potato. And you would think that Italians stereotyped with with pasta, that it's just, you know, everywhere, all the time, forever. No, but, the, but they were so poor. They had a lot of vegetables. Mm. They had a lot of soup. And they had a lot of... Beans, vegetables. Beans. Uh, yeah. Beans. yeah. Grains. That's I, do, a, that's... I, I do make a, I make a soup for my friends every St. Stephen's Day. I'm not sure what it's called in Italy, but... Uh, 26th Day of December. UK, 26th of December. A load of my friends come over and, and we, they, I live near the beach and we go for a, walk, a winter walk on the beach back to my house. And some of them are vegetarians and some of them are not, whatever. So I just cook roasted tomato soup with days old ciabatta torn up and put in the soup and it's supposed to be the kind of the poor man's soup so to fill the soup up you put the bread in the bread expands or whatever and I, again when i'm cooking this it's delicious everyone loves it but to me i am cooking something that is like millennia old and has this you know rustic you know poverty strewn beauty to it but i could be cooking something that was invented in 1966 yeah Absolutely. <laughs> Especially because tomato is something that definitely came after the so-called discoveries. Yeah, that's true. Found tomatoes. What about the Italian Mediterranean diet then that is so lauded around the world of, again, sliced tomato, mozzarella, extra virgin olive oil, a little bit of pepper. Again, like this can't be ancient. It can only be recent. Yeah, the theory of the Mediterranean diet being the healthiest around is something that was uh, popularized by the research of this American scholar, medical scholar, I think, mm -hmm. called Ansel Keys, who had examined, I think, blood samples among different communities in the United States. And he found that the healthiest profiles were those of immigrants that came from southern Italy. Now, modern researchers attribute the healthy state of those blood samples to the fact that people from the Italian South 
had eaten way less. And that was why they were actually healthier and they had less fats um, in them. Because actually the modern Southern Italian cuisine is like the fattest, greasiest, (laughs) you will find even, even for an Italian. This sort of begs the question though, like uh, why did these myths develop? Why, why are people now insisting that these are ancient recipes? What, what has it got to do with identity that makes these uh, legends so easy to believe? Why do we want to believe them? Oh my God. You've asked so many questions with like one because it's opening up so many boxes. So when it comes to, I think what we're really saying is why did it go viral? This idea that it was the best food in the world and that it was really ancient and that it was legitimate. All, the, all, all these legends had legitimacy. This is something that Alberto's work explains with the work of an English academic who wrote The Invention of Tradition. So he was the guy who shown how all the rituals, for example, around the monarchy were things that had been purposely invented rather than being part of a longstanding royal ritual tradition. So he applied this sort of modus operandi and research lens to Italian food and realized that what happened in the population is that when a country loses a sense of tradition, of identity, excuse me, when a country loses a sense of identity due to a deep historical trauma, which would have been obviously the world wars, what it does is it then goes on to create an invented tradition to make up for the loss of its identity, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what happened is in the post-war period, Italy experienced an unprecedented economic boom and people went from having nothing to eat to having endless choice. And they they rejected their real identity, Mm. which was... I think what Alberto said to me was their real identity had been trying not to starve. And wow. yeah. I can see why you would you would want to forget that and you would want to tell your children, oh, because Princess Margherita had asked the chef that she wanted something special. Definitely. But I think you're also asked about why it's still so pervasive, these beliefs. And I think there's a dichotomy there with economic and political ramifications there is a political aspect whereby um, believing in these legends then morphs into gastro-nationalism and gastro-purism and Italy at the moment there's the first government who set up a ministry of food sovereignty that had never existed before and from an economic point of view the food and drink sector is responsible for a very large share of the national GDP. So it's obviously something that people want to protect. Yeah. And because it's 2023, it gets dragged into the culture war because everything gets dragged into the culture war. Pigeons, stones, the colour of the sky, Dave's (laughs) jumper, everything. So you have the right-wing parties in particular tending to believe these uh, as uh, this wonderful term gastro-nationalism div wow. and, it, and if you look up um salvini who's a right-wing politician basically if you look up him eating there are 
millions of pictures of him eating everything. Basically, him eating is what... If you looked up Putin hunting, it's the same thing. Oh, no. Possibly right. for the same purpose. So. But they're really into this, like, this tradition that doesn't actually exist really you're absolutely right it's such a powerful propaganda tool and it's something so very agreeable like who wouldn't like an old lady making tortellini like there isn't one person who's gonna say that's not a lovely nice and controvertibly beautiful thing to look at uh, the political dimension of this is very strong but i think it's political but it's also exclusionary when it's about so the reason Alberto cares about a historical accuracy is because the history actually teaches us that we're all sort of cousins right so our attitude with America should be like look at that we were both making pizza we're the same whereas the Italian interpretation of the of history is we are better we did it first we have the original. Yours shouldn't even be called pizza. And that is wrong. But there is also an example uh, from recent events that I quote in the article, which is when during a traditional festivity in the city of Bologna, the archbishop, I believe, suggested making a version of tortellini, which was pork-free for Muslim people, Um immigrants or like citizens that wanted to take part in the celebrations and Salvini said this is outrageous this is an attack of our tradition they want to destroy us or like I'm paraphrasing something along these lines sure. I keep I realize I keep saying all these things in brackets because I'm such a writer I can like hear the FT lawyers <laughs> have you fact checked <laughs> like, ah! <laughs> uh, it's funny you've said you're paraphrasing I'm pretty sure legally that means we're all fine <laughs> anyway Salvini said this is an attack on our culture this is an attack on our tradition I'm paraphrasing but something along the lines of they're trying to destroy us and our culture and our history and Alberto responded uh, with the very hard to argue with fact that historically Tortellini never had pork in the restaurant. <laughs> so by offering pork free Tortellini, they would be making a version that was closer to the most Closer to it. Used to be with, filled with poultry. So like, yeah. you know, Dave, I'm taking, taking a mick by saying I'm going to ruin your desserts. Sure. But this idea of purity why we kind of think it's a little bit funny actually has real world ramifications because once you say something is exclusionary this is the purity we are trying to protect purity yeah Uh, that actually has real world ramifications Uh, there's a great there's a great kind of image at the start of this um article where you meet alberto grandi the man we're talking about here in parma and it's like it's in this cafe and he's worried like they hate me here he says and oh. and we've already heard about how uh, the the ambassador said stuff too but because you wrote an article and popularized his work even further have you had any sort of blowback or anything yes really? <laughs> Hardcore. So I had never been trolled before, and the experience of being trolled, eh, it's pretty brutal. I wasn't expecting, I've I've always kind of like thought, who cares? They're strangers. But when you're looking at your phone every five minutes and you have dozens of notifications of people insulting you personally and looking up details about you and picking things out of your pictures, your articles, your byline, whatever. 
it's weird. It's a weird experience. It's unnerving, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's hard not to be affected. Mm. And it was ironic because on the one hand, it was brilliant in the way that they were proving my point. Because yeah. I didn't get trolled by British people. I got trolled by Italian gastronationalists. Because when the uh, piece first went, went viral, it did so in the Anglophone bubble on Twitter. And that was all praise. And then Salvini picked it up. The Italian press picked it up. What happened is that the release of my article, by total coincidence, coincided with Italy submitting its application to for the national cuisine to receive intangible UNESCO heritage. Oh, no. Oh, wow. So that looks like you're absolutely taking the piss out of that suggestion. Wow. Yes, absolutely. So I can see why they would think that it was a conspiracy, but do they seriously think the FT have something like, no. <laughs> what, have, what have the FT got to gain from, from this exact scenario? Do you remember when you wrote your book, Dave, Irish Dancing is a load of rubbish and it debuted during Riverdance's uh, interval <laughs> dance in the Eurovision? It's it's a similar thing. So, Dave, I'm sorry I've kind of ruined some of your favourite dishes, but they well, still taste great. No, you that's see, this is the thing. I think, I think, I don't think you have, okay? Okay. I think I still adore Italian food more than anything. I think, however, I will just think of it slightly differently. Not taste-wise, but I'll just real, you know, I, I feel... I feel better informed is how I feel. Okay. And and know that this happens in every single country. Like hey, I... the Irish pub. I mean, if we uncover the truth for every single Irish <laughs> I pub. I want to know. <laughs> we oh, can't oh. tell you. Yeah. Oh, we let you into a little secret. We don't ha- hang bicycles or typewriters off all our pubs. Yeah. Doors. And you know what? <laughs> Irish people don't even drink. We've never had a pint in our life. Okay, never. That's, that's not true. <laughs> that's not believable. Dave's drunk right now. Dave has to get drunk to do this podcast. He needs to numb himself to my witterings. Dave doesn't even know my full name. That's that's how little sure he cares I do, about Niall. this podcast. Yeah. Uh, Mary, it's been an absolute pleasure busting some of the myths around Italian food, Brilliant. but also Brilliant. Uh, admiring the marketing genius that has gone with various recipes and various products down throughout the years. Thanks, Mary. <laughs> Welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That, Dave? Wow. Well, wow. Mariana. Where do you stand on that now? I, I'm okay. I, 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 there were points in, in that discussion where I was worried that this was going to have a material effect on my enjoyment of the most delicious food that has ever existed. Everything the Italians make, except things with mushrooms, which are gross. But no, I find myself now still convinced that I can eat it. I just know that it's a delicious lie. Oh, a delicious lie is a great name of an Edinburgh Fringe show. Can I ask you about the mushroom thing? You just don't eat mushrooms? No. Okay, because I thought it was going to be a weird day of thing going, I do eat mushrooms on their own, but if you put mushrooms in the pizza, I don't have mushrooms in the pizza, and I'll be disgusted. But no, just, okay. I just, I'm diametrically opposed to eating things that also grow between your toes. <laughs> Oh, mother of God. I'm actually... I've never <laughs> had a, something done. that you've said before where I actually had to take off my glasses. Yeah, I've did. only he... recently started wearing glasses and I've never taken them off with disgust before. He did, and now we... his eyes are squinting because he can't see anything, but he needed to remove the glasses. Wow, that is spectacular. 
What a way to finish. That horrendous image <laughs> from the new fist of Caniston. He's advertised everything else. Why not this? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Dave Moore, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk oh, to you on Neil Series Delamer. 3. Yeah, series 5 even. Series 5. Uh, series 6 coming up in February. Yeah, I mean, it's weird. Like, obviously, people listen to podcasts at all different times of the year. They live forever. But, I mean, it's Christmas. So we should just say, look, if you're listening to this around any Christmas ever, happy Christmas. And we'll see you in the new year. We can't wait. Series 6, we already... We see when we're doing a series, we're working on the next one. Yeah. So Neil and I, as excited as we are about, you know, Bertha Benz and Mark Vins and uh, the invention of Bailey's and the lies about Italian food, we're also working on season six, and we're so excited to bring that to you. And we're already, you know, prepping and planning. And the great thing is, neither of us knows what the other one's doing. So this is always <laughs> the exciting thing about it. And we'll so, say once again, these are not topical. Pretty no. much never topical. We might talk about a couple of things that are happening in our life at the time. <coughs> Celebrity mastermind. <coughs> Live with the Apollo. But like Dave, like his namesake, Dave, this can be played whenever. So all these podcasts, if you've just discovered this, go back and listen to our back catalog. Uh, it's, it's like Live with the Apollo on the Dave channel. Basically, it will last forever and ever and ever until it makes no sense anymore. So go and check out previous episodes. Listen to Dave on the radio on Today FM. I'm on tour everywhere in London and Glasgow and Belfast and Dublin and everywhere. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have your company, Dave. Happy Christmas. And yours too, Neil. And to all of our listeners, thank you guys so much for tuning in. We see the numbers every week. We're blown away. And please, over Christmas, please keep giving us five-star reviews views and then review absolutely anything in the text absolutely anything we're a hundred percent going to get a phone call from somebody in apple <laughs> going um you've bra- broken the service conditions of probably yeah. but come here happy christmas to neil happy christmas to all y'all and yeah thanks so much for listening bye Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. In manufacturing, you need to automate intelligently to compete effectively. But not all automation solutions are created equally. AGVs and AMRs driven by Bluebotics Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability. Because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's antdriven.com to learn more.